If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hi, folks. Before we get into this episode, I'm going to play a short promo for the podcast, Morbidology. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony. It takes an in-depth look at crimes all around the world. I'll let Emily tell the rest. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. Please, shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. I started taking it. Like, I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. Now back to the podcast. As the troubles wore on, the IRA was discovering more and more informers and touts in their ranks. They had to do something about it, and decided to set up their internal security unit, which became more commonly known as the Nutting Squad. The Nutting Squad was designed to be composed of only the most trustworthy Republican men. Their role was to comb through the entire provisional IRA from top to bottom and seek out informers, and if found, the informers would be subjected to an intense interrogation, torture and execution. But what happens when the man in charge of the group set up to find and execute informers is the single biggest informer himself? Who executes the executioners? This is the story of Steak Knife. This is the Troubles podcast, a podcast which explores the violence and bloodshed that occurred in Northern Ireland the Republic of Ireland and Great Britain, as multiple sides and organisations waged a bloody conflict over the status of Northern Ireland. On the surface, the Troubles was a war fought between many different sides and organisations. On the nationalist side, there was the Provisional IRA and the INLA fighting for liberation of the six counties of Northern Ireland and a united Irish, and in some cases, socialist republic. On the unionist side, there was the UVF, the UDA and many other groups fighting to resist nationalist groups, and each other in some cases. When the Northern Irish Police Force, the RUC, lost control, the British Army came in. Although they were initially welcomed by the nationalist community, they soon made it very clear that they were only targeting Republican paramilitaries, leading nationalists to declare them as a biased force. In the early days of internment, Around August 9th, 1971, nationalists were scooped up and it would be a while before the army began to target loyalists. As the troubles continued, 
the waters became significantly more murky. The British army was faced with an enemy that they couldn't recognise, who could disappear into a crowd at a moment's notice. The geography of Northern Ireland is also significant as well. A suspected member of the IRA could quite easily escape Northern Ireland by heading across the border into the Republic of Ireland. The British army was not allowed to enter the Republic, though they did covertly on a number of occasions. They could contact the Irish Gardaí and request assistance, but the relationship between the two was somewhat strained. The British army realised that in order to gain the upper hand, intelligence would be vital. They needed to build up a network of agents and supporters inside the nationalist community and inside the provisional IRA itself in Northern Ireland. Intelligence took on many forms and was different within each organisation. The Northern Irish Police Force, the RUC, had their own intelligence operation which was called Special Branch. There was also the UK's domestic counterintelligence agency, MI5. Then in the Republic of Ireland, the Gardaí also had their own network of informants. In this episode, we are going to focus on the Force Research Unit, otherwise known as the FRU. Set up by the British Army in 1982, the FRU's main aim was to obtain intelligence from secretly penetrating organisations in Northern Ireland by recruiting and running agents and informants. The FRU operated outside of the law, and they operated both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, and even had agents in the Gardaí. Though one would think that all of these intelligence agencies worked in harmony together, their relationship was often strained. And the RUC often wanted control of all intelligence gathering operations in Northern Ireland, whereas the FRU operated completely independent of them. Agencies vied for the intention of informants and even tried to take informants away from each other. As a result of this strained relationship, there were often significant gaps in information. Such was the case in the Oma bombing, where the local police force was essentially starved of intel that three different intelligence agencies had. It's covered back in season one if you want to hear it. One source for this episode is the book Steak Knife by Martin Ingram and Greg Harkins. Martin Ingram is a pseudonym used by the author Ian Hurst, who is an ex-British army soldier who briefly worked inside the FRU. I'll talk about him more later. His is a fascinating account of the inner workings of the FRU, and in the book he explains that for a soldier to get into the FRU, it was one of the most difficult areas to get into. Its motto was Fishers of Men, and from the outset, it was clear that this was not a regular unit of the British army. Ingram mentions that one of the early assignments in fruit training was to go to a pub and engage a complete stranger in conversation. Then, over the course of the conversation, one had to extract valuable information from this stranger without them realising, such as name, address, date of birth, family details, phone number, job, place of work, hobbies and vehicle type. This exercise demonstrated if the student could strike up what became known as a cold relationship with a stranger. Ingram writes that the failure rate of the pre-selection course was 4 out of 5. Then once the course began, if there were 10 students, on average 3 to 5 would be selected to join the FRU. Inside the FRU training compound, which was in Kent, England, there was also a bar, where soldiers could have a drink off the clock. In reality, there never really was an off-the-clock moment, and the soldiers were closely watched while drinking 
to see if one of them would slip up and forget their training. One simple slip of the tongue and the new recruits would be escorted off the campus within minutes and their chance at working for the Fru in Northern Ireland would be over. So what exactly did they do? A lot of their job was related to intelligence gathering, such as who was being targeted for assassinations, or where weapons were being covertly stored, or what locations were about to be bombed. One of the largest aspects of the job was recruiting informants and agents, and then acting as their handlers. There is actually a difference between an informer and an agent. An informer passes on the odd bit of information here and there in exchange for money, whereas an agent will act on the wishes of their handler. Basically, an informer passes information to the police and an agent acts on the direction of the police. To be an informer is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. And in Northern Ireland, you never know who is watching you. You don't know who is in the IRA or who is sympathetic to them. And to take on the role of informing the British Army, you can never be too sure exactly how safe you are. Informing, or becoming a tout, was believed to be the absolute lowest of the low in paramilitary circles. Over the course of the Troubles, many agents were unearthed and would be brutally tortured and executed. I'll be going into the process in more detail later in this episode, but for now, why would people take on this task? And how did the British Army go about recruiting them? The British Army had been recruiting and running agents in conflicts outside of Northern Ireland for decades, so by the time the Troubles began, they had more experience in that area, but it was still no easy task. Before approaching a potential agent, the person is first assessed. What value do they have? The ideal candidate would have direct access to paramilitaries, but there also was suitable ones that had indirect access to them, such as living in the same area as them, or just being like a local taxi driver, so they could identify a certain amount of people. When a potential agent is selected, then contact would need to be made. Ingram writes that making contact at the individual's home was not great, as the target feels more secure at home and will be less receptive to an approach. Places of leisure were good, such as fishing spots or swimming pools, as the target would be alone. In some cases, if they were unable to get the target alone, they would fake a prize draw that the target won and would have to go to a hotel to collect the prize. Upon arriving at the hotel, there would be no prize, but a meeting with their potential handlers. Another way of making contact would be if the target was selling a house or car. The agent would approach and make an offer that the seller couldn't refuse, which was significantly higher than the selling price. Money wasn't an issue for the British Army. In some cases, it would prove quite difficult to make contact. Through agents would often dress up in regular soldier uniforms and go door to door in order not to make it appear like they were targeting one individual. In some cases, the target knew that even talking to a British soldier could get them in trouble, so it would run off when they realised that someone was attempting to recruit them and they wouldn't return to Northern Ireland for a number of weeks. Okay, so the point of contact has been established. And now it was the handler's turn to try and figure out what would motivate the potential agent the most. One motivation was often revenge, say if the target had been beaten up by people associated with the paramilitary group. It's also important to remember that if a seemingly valueless individual is turned at a young age, they could go on to become quite influential and could yield a lot of information in the long run. 
One example of this mentioned in the book is in the case of the person known as Agent 3007. He was more involved in the political side of things and was a member of Sinn Féin. The Fru began working to boost his profile so that he would rise up the ranks of Sinn Féin. Agent 3007 soon became known as the man who could secure government funding for all sorts of things. Ingram writes that, quote, His status was helped when grant applications which should have gone in the bin didn't and were paid out in full. As his influence and status grew, it boosted the intelligence which he could provide. Another motivation for potential informers could be revulsion. The provisional IRA generated a lot of hate and ire amongst the people in Northern Ireland when their bombings killed innocent civilians and children, which happened frequently. Ingram writes that after the likes of the Enniskillen bombing or the Oma bombing, there would be a concerted effort on behalf of the Fru to recruit more agents, while the memory of the bombing is still fresh in the minds of the public. Probably the biggest motivator for someone becoming an agent is money. Amongst the nationalist population in Northern Ireland, the unemployment rate was significant. Paramilitary organisations paid very little and it was quite difficult to get by. Becoming an agent changed your circumstances, but not in an obvious way. But you could now pay your bills every month and afford to change your car every few years. You wouldn't want to make it too obvious that you were making money, otherwise people would start asking questions. Some informers were paid into secret accounts and then when their cover was blown, they would disappear into witness protection in Great Britain. The final motivator that Ingram writes about is blackmail. But he writes that it wasn't used very much, as an individual who was blackmailed was unpredictable and hard to control. There were also some instances where people would just simply walk into a British army base and offer up their services. In the book Steak Knife, Ingram gives an example of what things were like working with a willing agent. Ingram and others in the Fru had one agent that went by the nickname Busty Brenda. Brenda's house was one of the places where British soldiers could make a tea stop. This meant that it was a house where uniformed soldiers were welcome. If, after a number of visits, they were offered a cup of tea, this was a sign that the occupant could have potential to become an agent. Ingram built up a rapport with Brenda and she eventually decided to become an agent because of her friendship with Ingram and her revulsion at the IRA. Brenda had no ties with paramilitary groups, but Ingram encouraged her to make herself known in pubs and also join Sinn Féin. Brenda continued with the Fru after Ingram left, but she died of cancer quite young. Ingram writes that one of her most successful operations involved a close liaison, which meant that she slept with an individual which the Fru wanted access to. The activities that the Fru usually had agents doing involved working or keeping an individual distracted while their home or their vehicle was being bugged. As this web of intelligence grew, it had a serious effect on the IRA, so much so that they eventually had to change tactics and significantly reduce the amount of people who were aware of an upcoming attack. I've written about it earlier, but now a provisional IRA member would only know their smaller role in a larger overall operation, so as to minimise the risk of informers knowing what was happening. Even with this change in tactics, the damage done was significant. Weapon stores were seized and there were instances where British soldiers were aware of an upcoming ambush so would set a trap and lie in wait for an approaching IRA squad. This raises one of the many ethical issues in this episode. If the British Army were aware of an IRA operation as a result of covert intelligence received, 
is it ethical that they are allowed to shoot to kill? Meaning lying in wait to kill those involved. Such was the case in the Loch Gaul ambush. The British Army also knew how demoralising it was for members of the IRA to find informers in their ranks. As a result, they were happy to encourage it, and in some cases the RUC and British Army would drop charges and grant bail to an obviously guilty IRA member, making the member look as if they had informed to avoid jail time. This could very well lead to a death sentence for those involved. If a relative was killed after being accused of being an informer, it would leave a black mark on the family that would stay there for generations. There are many people who were killed during the Troubles, whose families still deny to this day that they were informing, and those families are still trying to clear the black mark from their loved ones' names. The Provisional IRA needed to stem the flow of information immediately. They did this by setting up the Internal Security Unit, which soon became known as the Nutting Squad. That's N-U-T-T-I-N-G. Nutting was a slang term for shooting someone in the head. The group was believed to have had a number of briefs. 1. Security and character vetting of new recruits to the IRA. 2. Collecting and collating material on failed and compromised IRA operations. 3. Collecting and collating material on suspect or compromised individuals, so informers. 4. Interrogation and debriefing of suspects and compromised individuals. And 5. Carrying out killings and lesser punishments of those judged guilty by IRA courts martial. If someone was picked up by the RUC or British Army, it was the Nutting Squad's job to then interrogate the individual after they had been released to determine if they had been disloyal to the IRA or if they had turned informer. It was an incredibly stressful experience. The internal security unit would need to be led by a person that the IRA trusted wholeheartedly, as they would be given access to all levels of the IRA from top to bottom. The man selected to take on that role was Freddy Scapatici. Scapatici was one of the most trusted men in the IRA, and in the same time, he was the single biggest leak in the organisation's history and would go on to become one of the most important informants in the history of the Troubles. Is something preventing you from reaching your goals or interfering with your happiness? If so, check out this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with a licensed therapist. It isn't a crisis line or a self-help line. With BetterHelp, you can connect with licensed counsellors who specialise in a range of issues, including depression, stress and anxiety. You can send a message to your counsellor anytime and schedule weekly phone and video sessions, all from the comfort of your own home. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counselling and offers much more options. Start living a happier life today. As a Troubles podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com troubles. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot troubles. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Born around 1946, Scapatici grew up in the markets area of Belfast. His father, Daniel Scapatici, was an Italian immigrant who arrived in the city in the 1920s. Around this time, cities like Belfast, Glasgow, Manchester and Dublin saw a huge influx of Italian immigrants seeking a better life. There were many Italian immigrants around the markets area of Belfast, so much so that it became known as Little Italy. Some of them retained their ties to the Italian language and culture, and others didn't. Freddie could not speak Italian. Freddie's father ran a number of ice cream businesses, but Freddie's passion was football, and in 1962, he travelled to the football club Nottingham Forest for a three-week trial with the club, but he was sent home. Scapatici was a short, stocky man with dark black hair and was known to be unruly and hot-tempered from a young age. I found other sources that he also went by the nickname The Wop, which is an offensive term for an Italian person. Scapatici became a bricklayer, but was soon drawn into the world of paramilitary activity and had his first brush with police in 1970 when he was fined for riotous activity. It wasn't long before he became a respected and feared commander of the Provisional IRA in the markets area of Belfast. 1971 saw internment come to the streets of Belfast, in which a large number of IRA members were swooped up and arrested by the British Army. Scapatici was picked up as part of this operation, and while in prison he built strong bonds with a number of prominent IRA members. He was released in 1974, but soon found himself in trouble with the RUC. The BBC documentary Panorama explains that upon his release from prison, Scapatici returned to his job as a bricklayer, but then was involved in a large tax fraud in the building trade. He was arrested by the fraud squad of the police, but instead of being charged, he made a deal with them. He agreed to become a police informer. In the book Steak Knife, the authors state that Scapatici's motivation for becoming an informer could have been related to him holding a grudge after an individual or group associated with the IRA had beaten him up. Another source says that Scapatici hated the Republican Martin McGuinness with a passion, and this could have been a reason for it. Either way, 
Soon after Scapatici became an informer for the FRU, the provisional IRA tasked him with leading the notorious Internal Security Unit, aka the Nutting Squad. One of the Nutting Squad's first victims was Michael Kearney. He was a young member of the IRA who was picked up by the army and then handed over to the RUC. They heavily interrogated him, and after three days, Kearney broke and told the police about the location of an explosives dump which was located in an apartment. They raided the apartment and recovered the explosives and then decided to release Kearney. This presents another ethical issue. By releasing him without charges, they were making it clear that it was him who had towed the police of the dump, which was a death sentence in the eyes of the IRA. A detective had warned police officers that if Kearney was released, he would be shot as a spy. The police then took a vote and voted to release him. Within 48 hours, Kearney was ordered to report to the Internal Security Unit. He was driven to the border of the Republic of Ireland, and then he was questioned for 16 days. He was then released on the belief that he was heading home. An unidentified relative of Kearney, who was also in the IRA, then explained what the IRA told him what happened next. They said that instead of being driven home, Kearney was brought in a van to an area called Maguire's Bridge. There he was told that instead of being released, he was being executed. He got out of the vehicle, asked to say a prayer, and then he was shot twice in the back of the head as he was praying. He was 20 years old when he died. In later years, the IRA has acknowledged that Kearney was never a spy. Sometimes when informers were found out and executed on the spot, they would have money placed in their hands as a sign that they were killed for accepting money. Shortly after this incident, Scapatici moved from the role of informer to a paid agent of the state. He was given a unique number of 6126 and a code name, which was Steak Knife. From his position as the head of the Nutting Squad, he could then feed information back to the British Army on any of their secret agents that were at risk of being investigated, exposed or executed by the squad. Over the next few years, there was a significant rise in the execution of suspected informers. Vincent Robinson was another member who was killed by the Nutting Squad. His body was found stuffed in a rubbish chute of a tower block. Vincent and Scapatici were neighbours, and Vincent's family knew that Scapatici was in the IRA and approached him to ask if Vincent had suffered. He assured Vincent's family that he hadn't. This wasn't the case. Vincent had been savagely beaten and the inquest revealed that he was tortured and repeatedly struck in the side of the head. Any member of the IRA who heard the name Scapatici was instantly filled with dread. He had a reputation for being ruthless and savage. Here's a quote from the book Killing Rage, written by ex-IRA man Eamon Collins. Scapatici is talking about how he blindfolded an individual and let him walk free from a vehicle thinking he was being brought home after being interrogated by the Nothing Squad. Quote, It was funny, he said, watching the bastard stumbling and falling, asking me as he felt his way along the railings and walls, is this my house now? And I'd say, no, not yet. Walk on some more. And then you shot the fucker in the back of the head, and both of them burst out laughing. Panorama explains that this savageness is something that helps Scapatici maintain his cover. The IRA has a fatal blindness when they were on the hunt for touts and informers. They believed that an individual who killed on behalf of the IRA 
couldn't possibly be working for the British Army. This raises another ethical issue. If Scapatici was allowed to kill a number of IRA members while working undercover as an agent for the British state, but his intelligence saved the lives of others, should the British Army allow him to keep killing? It appears that they did, which is a concept that flies in the face of the beliefs held by the then British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who believed that murder is murder is murder. Was she even aware of the nature of these operations? That is another question that many people want answered. With Scapatici at the core of the nutting squad, there are few who doubt that he did indeed kill undercover agents, or at the very least made the order. Could he have prevented these deaths? I have read accounts that just because he was an informer doesn't mean he told his handlers everything. But there were instances in which he did tip off his handlers and they decided not to act for fear of blowing his cover. It's very hard to know exactly how many deaths Scapatici is linked to. But the agent steak knife has been linked to at least 18 murders and there were 30 executions during Scapatici's reign as leader of the Nutting Squad. Frank Hegarty was another individual who was interrogated by the provisional IRA. In 1986, Hegarty was an army agent who gave away the location of a significant weapons dump from Libya that was hidden by the IRA. He was interviewed by Scapatici, who then said that he knew Hegarty was going to be shot. No one intervened and Hegarty was executed in May 1986. Were British agents allowed to die to protect Steak Knife's cover? It is important to remember here exactly who these agents were. In many cases, they were Republican paramilitaries or people from the nationalist community. I found one quote from an anonymous source that said, quote, Personally, I don't give a rat's arse if the IRA were going to shoot one of their own. It is possible that members of the security services didn't value the lives of these people as much as their own, simply because they had become agents. Joe Fenton was an agent who was run by the RUC Special Branch, unlike Scapatici who was run by the FRU. Fenton was an estate agent paid by the RUC to set up homes, which the IRA in turn used as safe houses. Fenton could then bug these houses, which provided some significant arrests and the seizure of weapons. But soon the IRA grew suspicious after Fenton's name was attached to many of these arrests. Special Branch reported that Scapatici was to lead an IRA investigation into every single one of Fenton's jobs over the years. Fenton met with Scapatici and the meeting left him shaken. Then, six months later, Scapatici met with him again. He travelled to a house in West Belfast and was violently beaten while interrogated by Scapatici. He eventually confessed that he was a Special Branch agent. These confessions were often recorded or written down by the IRA and then shown to the victims' families to justify the killing of their loved ones. In the evening, they led Fenton outside, where he decided to make a break for it and run for his life. One shot was then fired into his back, and he was then held down and shot three times in the head. Panorama understands that Scapatici told his handlers that he had a second meeting scheduled with Fenton, and warned them that, quote, he won't survive this one but his handlers chose not to intervene. Then, in January 1990, just 10 months after Joe Fenton, Scapatici was back in the same house in Belfast, interrogating another agent of the special branch, Sandy Lynch. 
Lynch remembered what Scapatici said to him later on when talking to the police. Quote, He said if he had his way, I would get a jab up the arse and waken up in God's country hung upside down in a cow shed, that he'd skin me alive and no one would hear me squealing. Like the time before, Scapatici warned his handlers that there would be another meeting and this time Lynch wouldn't leave. This time, however, the execution was prevented. Lynch was rescued from where he was being held and five IRA members were also arrested. So why was Lynch saved and Fenton not? The timing of this rescue was significant, as just three months earlier, English police officer John Stevens had arrived in Northern Ireland to investigate undercover operations. Can you tell us how your inquiry is going at the moment? Well, I was called over here to do a totally independent, impartial inquiry into criminal allegations, and it's progressing pretty well at the present time. When do you... Here's what Stevens was told when he asked if the army ran undercover agents. No, we were told the opposite. Uh, when we first went into Northern Ireland, we were told that the army did not run any agents whatsoever. That was a flat lie. Yes. It's still unclear if the rescue of Sandy was related to the arrival of John Stevens. But after the rescue of Sandy and arrest of the IRA men, the house that the men were in was combed and a fingerprint matching Scapatici was found on a device used to check people for bugs. A warrant was then issued by the RUC for Scapatici's arrest. They had no idea he was an agent of the FRU. Panorama explains that someone up the chain of command for the RUC did know about Scapatici's role and helped to concoct an alibi for him. The owner of the house was contacted and asked to say that Scapatici had been in her house weeks earlier to complete some electrical work. Scapatici was eventually arrested, but this alibi proved to be a saving grace. But that being said, the rescue of Sandy Lynch caused alarm bells to ring in the IRA leadership. As a result, IRA man Spike Murray investigated Scapatici and he was subsequently removed from his position as leader of the Nutting Squad. But he wasn't executed. Why not? It's still anyone's guess, but there is a theory that by executing him, the IRA leadership were admitting that the man whose job to protect the integrity of the IRA was the exact one tearing it apart from the inside, which is something that would have been deeply embarrassing for the IRA to admit. Another reason could be that it would have caused the provisional IRA to split even more than they already were splitting. I found one source saying that the Republicans in South Armagh had long been suspicious of Scapatici and they had made their feelings known, but no action was taken. Ousted from the IRA, Scapatici decided to fight back and he sat down with reporters in 1993 for an ITV programme called The Cook Report. The report was all about the head of the IRA's Northern Command, Martin McGuinness. Scapatici met with the makers of the programme under the pseudonym Jack. In the interview, he vented his anger at the senior IRA members. Here's Scapatici talking about Martin McGuinness. He's a very cold person. He doesn't have friends within the IRA. He has what he calls comrades. He doesn't have friends as such. Well, I know it because if we want to be straight, I was at the heart of things for a long time. I'm no longer at the heart of things. I haven't been for a few, two or three years, but I know what I'm talking about. When the RUC special branch realised that Scapatici had spoken to the media, 
They explained to the Cook Report that if they broadcast his voice, he would be shot. This was irrefutable evidence of touting, and if broadcast, the IRA couldn't deny it. As a result, his voice wasn't broadcast, though the audio of the interview was leaked years later. This finally brings us to Martin Ingram, aka Ian Hurst. He was a member of the FRU who left in 1990, but since leaving he began speaking out about what had been going on in the FRU, saying he believes that no one has a license to kill, and he condemned the FRU, accusing them of allowing this to happen. He began to advocate for some form of retribution against Scapatici, and in 1999 John Stevens returned to Northern Ireland and interviewed Hurst. It's now the year 2000, and people were aware of the activities of an agent known as Steak Knife, and they were aware of the IRA man Scapatici. But it wasn't public knowledge yet if Scapatici was indeed the agent known as Steak Knife. That was until 2003, when Hearst leaked Steak Knife's real identity to the media. On the back of this, Scapatici left Northern Ireland for England, where MI5 offered him security. Scapatici declined and believed that he could talk his way out of this situation. He returned to Belfast and he met with the IRA leadership, and then on May 14, 2003, he set up a meeting with BBC correspondent Barney Brown. The meeting was recorded, and in it, Scapatici sat with his solicitor and explained that he was an ordinary man, that he was so insulted by this accusation that he was a spy, that he had to speak out and clear his name. Here's Scapatici reading out his statement. My statement basically is that I am Freddy Scapatici. I'm sitting here today with my solicitor. I'm telling you I'm not guilty of any of these allegations. So again, Scapatici is back in Northern Ireland, so where is the IRA during all of this? According to Panorama, they were watching the entire time. Literally in a car across from the office where Scapatici was reading out the statement. And they were content with this narrative that he was putting out there because, again, it would be too much for them to admit that their top man in the nutting squad was an informant the entire time. Scapatici brazenly went one step further to clear his name by suing the Northern Irish government, but he lost the case. So the question remains, did the British government go too far? Since the end of the Troubles, the vast majority of British ministers in the UK have argued that the British government acted within the rule of the law but there are still many questions left unanswered. And as a result of the public pressure, Operation Canova was set up in 2016, which saw a team of 50 people working to probe over 200 murders during the Troubles. Much of their focus is on steak knife, and they will attempt to determine if lives were sacrificed in order to keep him in place. As of writing, £35 million has been spent, and a report is due to be released at some stage in the future perhaps 2022. So what happened to Scapatici? To be honest, it's hard to find out exactly what he has been doing lately. I understand that he has been living in a secret location in England since 2003 and continues to maintain that he is not the British agent steak knife. The Guardian reported that back in 2018, Scapatici was arrested for questioning as part of the Canova report. He was released shortly afterwards, but then was back in the courts 11 months later, charged with two counts of possessing extreme pornography. The 72-year-old appeared before court in central London to hear the charges. 
he was found to be in possession of at least 329 images involving bestiality. None of the images involved children. In court, Scapatici said that his depression and health issues had driven him to the darkest corners of the internet. The court then heard that Scapatici said that he had told police officers that he, quote, had no sexual interest in animals and preferred women with big breasts. He was given a light sentence of three months in custody, which was then suspended for 12 months. In 2019, Scapatici's wife, Sheila, passed away after a short illness. Back in Northern Ireland, there are 32 civil cases being brought against Scapatici by families of victims. Civil cases rely on a lower burden of proof than criminal cases, and many of these cases are arguing that steak knife's handlers could have prevented the murder or torture of their loved ones. But they chose not to, so as to maintain his cover. These civil cases are running alongside Operation Canova, but there were concerns after, in 2021, the British government announced their intention to put a stop to any more criminal prosecutions related to the Troubles. This announcement has caused outrage amongst many victims' families, who have been campaigning for justice for their loved ones for decades. As of writing in late 2021, things are still progressing, but just at a rather slow pace. I've read that the IRA made two major mistakes, which allowed Steak Knife to become so successful as a mole in their ranks. For one, the members in the Nutting Squad was never changed. Even in the Fru, the heads were replaced every couple of years to prevent any one individual from wielding too much power if they changed sides. This was not the case in the Nutting Squad, and the core members were the same for the entire time they were active. The second reason is that the Nutting Squad was composed of middle-aged men, who had a lot more to lose if they were picked up and given lengthy sentences in prison. So where do things lay now? The full truth behind Scapatici could be potentially devastating for a number of institutions, including the IRA and Sinn Féin, but also the British Security Services. Ian Hurst alleges that as he was writing the book Steak Knife, which was a source in this episode, his house was broken into and one of the early manuscripts were stolen. Such was the fear just how damaging anything to do with Steak Knife had become. BBC correspondent Barney Rowan doesn't believe that a full inquest will ever take place, because he believes that the truth is, quote, too damaging for too many people. We will await the results of the Canova report, and I may even release an updated episode when that report is out. But that's it for this week. Thanks, and see you next time. Patreon is a great way to show your support. I release the episodes there early, and I also put out a companion video with each episode. On Patreon, the episodes are also completely ad-free, and you can listen on your own personal RSS feed on your podcast player. I'll also be posting there the full show notes for every episode. You can support the podcast over at patreon.com forward slash the troubles podcast. Alternatively, if you'd like to support the podcast in a once-off fashion, you can do that over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the troubles podcast. You can also support the podcast by leaving reviews or simply telling your friends. It all helps.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.